0: can turn to Daniel 7. It's printed in your bulletin, or you can uh, turn in your Bible. You'll notice right away as we get into chapter 7 that there's a change in this book. Uh, We'll talk more about that in a minute, but uh, let's pick up then with Daniel 7. This will take us two weeks to get through, uh, but we'll read the first 14 verses together. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A 1,000 thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you've given us your word. We pray that though these things are, in this particular passage, often seems so complicated, Lord. We pray that you would make it plain to us what you would have us take from it. We know that it is given to us because you love us and because you want us to understand. So would you show us the truth? Would you show us in particular the good news of your Son? We ask in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever been watching a show and then all of a sudden it sort of changes? It suddenly becomes a very different show than you thought you were watching? there is that moment you know if you remember the show lost in the first episode they crash land on the beach and they're just trying to survive and you think it's just a show about people trying to survive on a desert island until all of a sudden from the bushes there's this shaking and this noise of that does not sound like any animal that you would ever expect and it's obviously enormous and you realize you're into a whole different thing than just about people surviving a crash landing. Um, this is kind of what happens in Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel are stories about Daniel and sometimes his friends and what they endured, how they persisted in following the Lord. It, it's, a, it's a bunch of stories like that that are relatively familiar, and certainly if you're in the church, you learn a lot of those stories uh, as you're growing up. Uh, they're, all, they're all pretty familiar, and in some ways, they they make a lot of sense. This is about being faithful to the Lord. But it all changes in chapter 7, because while there had been visions and dreams that Daniel had heard recounted to him, and it helps people understand, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in particular, the rest of the book from here on out are the dreams and visions that Daniel receives. Uh, and it gets kind of crazy. The rest of this book is is really in this genre that is known as apocalyptic literature uh, that 's the Greek word meaning something being revealed a revelation i mean the, the last book of the Bible in English is always revelation right I mean but the title in Greek is the apocalypse uh, it 's a revealing of something and there 's other parts of the Old Testament that do this a little bit, but this is… The, the second half of Daniel is sort of this big chunk of apocalyptic literature. But here's the thing to understand, and this is, this is what, why we ought to not be discouraged or daunted by the second half of Daniel, is it's about revealing something. And what apocalyptic literature does in short, and we'll talk about some of the features as we go, but what it does in short is it makes everything strange in order to make everything clear. It makes everything strange in order to make everything clear. In other words, it gives you a different way to look at what's going on in the world than the messiness of how we typically see it. In order to make clear what's actually going on in it. And so one of the things that we're always supposed to take from apocalyptic literature and certainly supposed to take in Daniel, in Daniel 7, is hope. Hope within history, hope through suffering, and hope for victory. Hope within history, through suffering, and for victory. Now, the historical piece uh, is, is maybe in some ways the most interesting piece of this. So we're supposed to hope through history. And notice what happens even in verse one. We're told that this is during the first year of Belshazzar. So the narrative took us, you know, starting with Daniel being brought into captivity into the era of the Persian Empire. But now we're backing up to the end of the Babylonian Empire, to the end of an empire. And so, we've already read about Belshazzar. We know what a bum he was, right? We know, we know that he was trying, this is back in chapter 5, trying to sort of portray power and influence and greatness. He was trying to puff himself up, but his empire was falling apart. And, of course, Daniel, you know, comes in with the handwriting on the wall and, and witnesses the end of the, the Babylonian Empire. And that's an important piece, not just a passing idea, because Daniel then is getting this vision right as that empire is coming to a close. And this vision starts with the sea. And in, in all ancient, virtually all ancient Near Eastern writing, the sea is sort of an image of chaos, in the Bible, in a number of different ways, picks up on that resonance, but specifically associates what comes out of the sea often with what is evil. Uh, This happens in a number of different places. That doesn't mean God doesn't like the beach. It doesn't mean that God didn't create the great (laughs) creatures of of the deep. No, no, no. But in the symbolic world, right, when, when the Bible is speaking symbolically, the sea often involves that, which makes sense because, I mean, look, without modern technology, to be out on the open ocean is a terrifying thing. It, it really is. I mean, just imagine a whale, you know, <laughs> coming up next to you. It's like, whoa, you know, like, where did this thing come from? And you're just in a little wooden boat, you know, <laughs> bouncing around. Uh, waiting, hoping that the wind picks up so you can get out of the way. It's a terrifying experience, or it can be anyway. And so the whole image of the sea is that way. At the very end of the Bible, in the new heavens and the new earth, the very end of Revelation, we're told that there is no sea. Again, not because God hates the beach, but because it's an image of, of sin and evil. So what we're being reassured of is that that has been done away with for good. So, it, all this stuff comes out of the sea, and there's these four different beasts. Now, what's fascinating here then is that chapter seven is connected back as well to chapter two. Uh, if you don't remember chapter two off the top of your head, chapter two was a vision Nebuchadnezzar had of a statue that had four parts. And just like that statue, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was told that that statue represented four different empires, and then the kingdom of God would come in like a stone and smash it and then grow into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. So, too, this is a series of four kingdoms. And actually, in, in the section we'll read next week, it explicitly says that there are four kingdoms. So, we have a connected set of visions, a, a basic framework for history from the time of Daniel until the coming of the kingdom. That is framed in terms of four empires that will come and go. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, back in chapter 2, is told that his is the first empire, the Babylonian Empire. In the next chapter, chapter 8, we'll specifically have reference to the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. And some of the imagery with these first three Beast is pretty obviously connected to sort of the what happens uh, within those empires, and and yet that's not really the focus. The focus is on the fourth beast, the one that seems to sort of defy description. Uh, it has horns, you know, which is always a symbol of power, and any animal that's horned is always dangerous. Uh, it has ten horns. <laughs> uh, it has feet you know, with claws like iron. Uh, this is a, it is, you know, it, and then it has this weird little horn that is boasting. You know, there's all this stuff going on here with this fourth beast. But what we're being, this is what's so important to understand, what we're being shown then is that the kingdom of God is coming after these four empires. And of course, from the perspective of Israel, right, these are the four empires, Uh, during that era, of course, if you were, you know, say in East Asia, there would probably, you would think of it differently. But from the perspective of Israel, these are the four empires that passed. Now, what's important to understand about this then is that God's kingdom is coming in time and space, in history. And there are a lot of mistakes then that we can make as we interpret this. Uh, Most of them come from missing what apocalyptic literature is actually about. Because while these empires are actual geopolitical entities, the point that's being made historically is not about politics. The point of apocalyptic literature is to tell history from a different vantage point. To tell history in terms of the spiritual forces that are at work. God against Satan and the demonic forces that have arrayed themselves against him. Uh, The emphasis always in apocalyptic literature is about judgment and redemption. The emphasis is always a kind of spiritual history in which geopolitics, while it may play a role in how things pan out, it is really much more important the role that it plays in the spiritual dimension. So that, you know, look, the Bible is clear about this, right, that government is a good thing given by God. And yet, it also can become a monstrous thing that is abused by those who do evil. It's both things at once, (laughs) like everything about our existence, right? We are given good things by a God who is a good creator, and yet we twist them for terrible ends. And usually, the better a thing is the more twisted it can become, the more destructive it is. And so it is that, you know, governments then, in this way of thinking about it, are to one degree or another often being duped into the satanic plot that's at work. And the fourth beast represents the sort of culmination of that demonic power. And yet, and yet, and yet, so so, what, so, one way we're, we're supposed to not understand this is that this is about whether we are involved in a, in a political system that is demonic or not. Uh, and I got news for you. What this is telling us is it's a sliding scale. <laughs> and yes, the, the fourth beast represents that. But the other beasts, while they lose power, they are not destroyed, at least for a time. The flip side of this is, of course, the end of all things is a government that will not end. It is God's government, which is also why we don't hope, even in a relatively good government. Because our hope is in God's government, that it will come. Our hope is in the one who is truly righteous and who can judge the nation's fairly, who will judge them with righteousness without any qualification. That is our hope. And that means, see, that God is the one driving history, not evil. And, it's, and we can misunderstand this because these passages sound so strange to us. What's interesting is I doubt they sounded that strange to people in Daniel's time, It was not a mystery that evil was at work. What was the profound comfort was that the ancient of days would rule. That all the nations would be counted, you know, called to account for what they have done. God is the one who is driving history and will bring it to its conclusion. God is the one who will ransom his people. God is not surprised by this, nor is the power of even this fourth beast intimidating in in the least to God. It is the curious thing that happens in all of these apocalyptic… all this apocalyptic literature in the Bible is the forces of evil are so scary, and yet when God shows up, there's not really a fight. I mean, in in Revelation, there's this, you know, famous battle of Armageddon, you know, where the nations basically encircle the Mount of the Lord. And you know what? God shows up, and it's over. It's just done. There's no battle. The, The point of this is that we ought to have confidence that God is working in space and time for our redemption. The point is not, well, how do we take back power for ourselves? The point is to trust in the Lord that He is greater than He who is in the world. And that ought to give us confidence, again, at some sort of big cultural level, right, that, that as we think about ourselves, Uh, as Christians in the world in the 21st century, but it also ought to give us confidence even personally, individually, that your life is not out of control. I mean, it might be out of your control, but it is not out of the Lord's control. And that the place in time to deal with the Lord is right now whatever your circumstances are. It is today because the way in which we often look for the, I don't, I don't know if you've done this before, I bet you have, because I, I hear it in various ways from all kinds of people, and I do it myself as I think, well, I'm going to wait until this situation or this issue is resolved, and then I'll really get back to dealing with God. But the, you know, the more you think that, the more just, you know, it's a moving target, right? Because we think, well, I'll just need to get through this crisis that I'm dealing with. Or I just need to deal with this pattern of sin myself. That might be the most futile. Or we think, I just got to get through this hard season of life, right? Whatever, you know, whatever's going on. Or I got to get through this boring season of my life. I, gotta, I, I just got to get more healthy physically or emotionally. I've got to get to some milestone. And then I'll really start to deal with God. And the point is, no, it is in the middle of all of these things that we deal with God. Because it's in the middle of those things that is the time to deal with God. Because when God shows up, in power. It really is too late. He wants, to, he wants to deal with you now in the midst of a world that is rocked with evil. In, a, in the midst of a time in which our own hearts are divided by evil. This is the time to deal with the Lord. Not some time down the road when things are better, when you feel like you've got more grip on things. Because actually right now, when you feel like you don't have a grip on things, is the moment it becomes clear that God is who he is. It's right in the middle of the chaos and the evil that it becomes clear that God is the one who actually needs to do something to fix us, to fix this world. This isn't, in other words, today. This moment in your life is not the moment to get everything fixed up and then to deal with God, but to deal with God now. Because you do need fixing in some way or another. And he is the one to do it. So our hope is in history. It's in space and time but it is also through suffering. And this, again, is a theme that runs really throughout the Bible, but certainly in Daniel is very much pronounced. A thread that runs through the whole thing is that the power of evil in the world is after you. Uh, this is, you know, verse 7 and 8, the the description of the beast coming after others, and is not just some mindless animal, right? I mean, the the horn, this little horn, which seems so small, is boasting, is powerful. There, there's more discussion about it in, in the section we'll read next week, and we will talk even more about it then as well. But, the, but this beast is after you. It is powerful. It is boasting. And it is going in particular after the saints, we're told in verse 25 later on. That he's going after the saints. And all of this is to say what we have known from the very beginning of the Bible. Back to Genesis 3, right, is that Satan and his minions are after you and me and the world. This is we have such a hard time getting our heads around this piece of this sort of thing too, right? As we think, well, but it shouldn't be that bad, right? Because we're modern people, and first off, we think we can get a grip on suffering. And yet, despite, you know, all of our scientific endeavors, and there have been tremendous gains in terms of disease… It is hardly true that we are not suffering. Our mental health is worse than ever. And death is still inescapable. So in some ways, we may put a certain kind of suffering off for time, but it does come. We have a hard time hearing about suffering, but we especially have a hard time hearing about forces of evil at work in the world, because that just doesn't seem to be our experience. Again, in a mindset in which we think of the world so scientifically, it's so difficult to think of forces of evil at work. Yet, of course, most people for most of history and most of the world have not had a hard time thinking that way. Uh, we are perhaps uniquely dysfunctional, in our inability to think about realities beyond what we can touch and see and measure. Yet it has to be said that this dysfunction isn't just a kind of cultural problem, it's a Christian problem. Because when we talk about spiritual warfare, there's definitely ways in which Christians take this in weird directions, right? So, on the one hand, there are Christians who think of everything difficult in life as being spiritual warfare, I mean, I've, you know, there are folks who will be confronted with their sin and call the difficulty of it spiritual warfare. Well, there might be, but that is war with yourself, right? It may be difficult to deal with, but that is not someone outside coming after you. That is dealing with what is going on in your own heart. Or, you know, maybe even more obviously, there are those who treat others harshly in the name of Jesus and then call it spiritual warfare when they are treated harshly themselves. I mean, there is a, there is a church that uh, goes around the country and says just the most terrible things about Uh, homosexuals, about Jews. When I was a campus minister, they came to our campus to boycott the Hillel Center because the Jews had killed Jesus. And what they do is they make a monstrous half-truth the thing that they'll hang their hat on and then are proud that they're suffering for Jesus. They're not suffering for Jesus. People are mad at them because they are treating people wickedly. That's not suffering. That is not spiritual warfare. Or if it is spiritual warfare, they are being the self-deceived double agents of evil. On the other hand, there's lots of us who probably don't think about spiritual warfare as a category for anything we experience day in and day out. I mean, this might be where most of us are at. We think about social dynamics. We might… we think about psychology. We might think of our own particular individual sins and our dealing with God and them and maybe, you know, this or that person that was hurt but we don't really think of spiritual warfare as being a reality. And yet what clearly all of this literature, and Daniel 7 in particular, is telling us is that there is a war in which we are caught up. And like any kind of total war, there are no bystanders. Anybody can be collateral damage if not intentionally targeted, right? I mean, this is the truth about spiritual warfare. The warfare that Satan is waging is not interested in giving people a pass for being non-combatants. That is not at all what he's about. His is a total war, And we ought to ask ourselves then how we respond to that kind of thing. And I think what is, especially, especially when it comes home to us, when we suffer at the hands of the forces of evil, because we tend to have, rather than keeping our heads, we tend to have a kind of fight or flight instinct that doesn't really do us any good. On the one hand, when difficulty comes, I mean, there's a lot of Christians who try to evade dealing with it. And when something that the Bible teaches isn't particularly popular, we try to explain it away, one way or another. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't stop and hear critiques and try to think them through. And yet, the Bible is still what we're called to listen to. It is still God's Word. And there are plenty of times where things that, you know, contemporary American society is fine with were deeply unpopular. What we're offended by may be very different than what other people are offended by in other parts of the world. And it's God's Word. We ought to be listening to it. But on the other hand, too, we often tend to take a posture of outrage when we expect experience something difficult. We're taking our cues, whether that's from a culture war, whether that is a temperament of our own that we tend to buy into, and we think, well, if we are being attacked spiritually, what we need to do is lash back out. That the way we ought to fight would dismiss and lay aside things like, I don't know, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, or the wisdom from above in James 5, three. But that misses the point. And this is so, this is so, so important. Whenever we talk about spiritual warfare, you've got to get this point. We do not fight in the same way that the world fights. There's a term in, 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 there's a military term, asymmetrical power. And that… So, you know, one way to fight a battle is just line your troops up and hope that you have more than them or that just the odds of who gets hit work in your favor. That is symmetrical warfare, basically. <laughs> You're just trying to sort of meet each other with the exact same weapons and do the exact same thing. Asymmetrical warfare is when you try to bring to bear the sorts of weapons and tactics that the, that the, other, the enemy will not be able to counter has no answer for. Symmetrical warfare. Not answering evil with evil, but with good. I mean, Paul says that explicitly in Romans 12. Not to answer evil with evil, but answer it with good. Waging war, as it were, with truth and peace and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. That is the wisdom from above that James talks about. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And to those things, Satan and the forces of evil, and indeed even the evil in our own hearts, has no answer. Has no response. You see, when we're trying to navigate today, and we're trying to navigate the challenges we face right now, In modern America, the answer is still the same as it always has been because the asymmetrical power of the gospel is still the same as it has always been. It is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself and to love even even your enemies. That we wage war not with the weapons of the enemy trying to outdo them with, in anger, and violence, in lies, but with the truth, but with what is good. For those things are never, never defeated. There, there's a moment uh, in the Lord of the Rings... When they're at the council trying to figure out what to do with this ring of power that they have, and uh, honestly, I can't remember if it's in the films, because I stopped watching the films a long time ago. Life is too short for that, but in the book. Uh, They're talking about what to do with this ring, and Gandalf said, and they finally decide they're going to go destroy it. They're going to have to get into Mordor, right? Behind enemy lines to this, you know, like the hottest volcano you can possibly imagine to destroy this ring. And Gandalf says, well, let folly be our cloak, a veil before the eyes of the enemy, for he is very wise and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure he knows is desire, desire for power. And so he judges all hearts. Into his heart the thought will not enter, that any will refuse it, that having the ring we may seek to destroy it. And it's a powerful image of the way that evil works because it cannot understand love. It cannot understand goodness. It cannot understand gentleness and peace and mercy and go on and on and on. But it cannot understand it. And more importantly, it cannot defeat it. Which is why our hope is for victory, our third point. We read, of course, that God shows up in judgment, starting in verse 9, the Ancient of Days, the one whose days go back, into eternity and he sets up his throne and it's awesome it's got fire it's a whole thing there's thousands and thousands of his angels around it and he starts to execute judgment he brings in the saints to be seated as as the court the books are opened and yet it takes someone else showing up. In verse 13, one like a son of man. One like a son of man. So, you know, to say somebody is the son of something is to say, that's, you know, that's what they are. Son of man is a human. Just like you and I. And yet there's weird things about this human figure, right? I mean, he rides on the clouds. Well, that's a description given to God over and over again, especially in the Psalms. I mean, take Psalm 104, for example. It's talking about God. He makes the clouds, his chariots, and he rides on the wings of the wind. And he is received, of course, uh, with honor and is given the dominion of God over all the peoples and nations and languages, a kingdom that has no end. I mean, he is this human figure, and yet seems to have the prerogative of God. I mean, you know where this is going, of course. (laughs) It's not an accident that Jesus picks this title, Son of Man, as his default title for himself. It it really is. I mean, it's all over the Gospels, right? Jesus calls himself the Son of Man over and over again. He did not really call himself the Christ ever. He lets other people come to that conclusion that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. But Messiah was loaded. The Son of Man is this one, this one passage, and it's this enigmatic figure. What is he? And so Jesus takes that up and allows people to, to think it through, right? Like, what does it mean? And Jesus picks up the idea of the Son of Man on a couple of occasions. In Mark 13, Jesus is giving his own apocalyptic speech. And again, comes back to this that the turning point is when the Son of Man comes riding on the clouds. And then, of course, when Jesus is arrested and standing before the chief priests, uh, this is what happens in, in Mark 14. He says, But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's on the clouds, but now he has, he's at the right hand of God. And Jesus then is obviously connecting what this Son of Man does in receiving all power and authority from God with what he is about to accomplish as he is condemned to death. The means by which he will take control, the means by which he will win this battle, this war, is by laying down his life. It is the veil of folly that Satan never saw coming. That Jesus would lay down his own life? You know, we're told, we're told a couple of different points uh, at the end of Jesus' life. As Satan is involved, we're told he entered Judas. He clearly thought he had, he had the moment where he was going to defeat whatever it was Jesus was trying to do. And, of course, the whole point is in swallowing up Jesus, death had undone itself. that in putting Jesus to death, he had actually put to death the power of sin. In Jesus coming in love for us and laying down his life for us, he accomplished everything that we could not. The way that God answers the power of evil in its lies, in its arrogance, in its violence and anger, the way that he responds is with love laying down his life for us. And that is why we have the asymmetrical power of warfare in the fruit of the Spirit. Why it works, because it is the very character of Jesus being worked out in us. It is the very life of Jesus being worked out in our lives And though, you know, this situation and that one in our lives may not work out exactly how we think they ought to, we have every confidence that God is at work, that he will not fail, that victory is guaranteed because victory was guaranteed in the body and blood of Jesus, given for you and raised up for you. And Jesus now has all power and authority in heaven and on earth, and he will return. That is our hope. You see, one of the things that's going on here is that we see that not only is God in charge of history and driving it to its conclusion, not only can He do something through our suffering, but He did something through His own suffering to bring it to victory. Through His own Son, He has given us everything we need to endure. And He has given us every reason to have hope that though we may feel like our situation is out of control, And indeed, it may be out of our control. He will not fail. The Son of Man gave His life as a ransom for many so that we would be His children. We would be the children of God. So we enter into His judgment with confidence and with hope. And we engage the difficulties of our own lives knowing that he does not fail. And he will use all of those things for good in our lives in the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in our own ability to fix things. Our confidence is not in our own ability to meet the powers of evil, power for power, but rather in Christ, who himself gave himself as a sacrifice for sin, and rose again as the guarantee that all will be well in him. So as we come to this supper, Lord, feed us on the body and blood of Jesus, given for us and raised up for us, that we can have confidence even today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.